My name's Mudat. I've been playing around with computers for I don't even know how long. I mean, since I was a kid, I guess. Um, and that's what made me choose to go into the industry, first of all. And um, other than that, on the side, um, I used to play with a band for a few years. We toured uh, India for a bit. And um, other than that, I produce music on the side now uh, by myself and play a gig like every now and then. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it. I do a ton of JavaScript when we talk about computers. If we talk about music, I do a ton of Ableton. I think yeah, like most uh, programs I've heard of that are also in bands usually write closure. I don't know if that's a <laughs> pattern. Yeah, I, I think it is switching. a pattern. No, I, I think it is a pattern because pretty much everybody that I knew here who was good at computers was either in a band or producing by himself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it is a pattern. You might be onto something there. <laughs> yeah, and you sent us a list of uh, things we could talk about. My favorite one was how learning Haskell can make your code in any language other than Haskell totally awesome, which I completely agree with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I chanced upon. I didn't really, I didn't really know Haskell or anything. And a um, few months uh, before I went to the recurse center, um, I'd quit everything and I was sitting at home for three months. I was like, you know, um, I need to bump up my skill set because the kind of work that I have here uh, is basically making me stagnate as a programmer. So um, during those three months, what I did was um, I got into Haskell and um, I learned, to, I, I'm not like super good at it, but I, the thing is it taught me another way of thinking, right? And um, what happened was, was the nice side effect of that was that thinking leaked in, leaked into any other project that I was working on, which was usually JavaScript. Um, and what I ended up noticing that I was doing was um, um, my functions suddenly became pure. Uh, classes disappeared from my code. Uh, and every function, pretty much every function that I wrote had a type signature written on top of it uh, using <laughs> the same syntax as Haskell as a comment <laughs> to basically guide my um, um, uh, definition of the function. So even before defining the function, I would just write the uh, the um, type signature and break my head writing the type signature, you know, because it's painful um, to wrap your head around it when you don't really have a type system and anything can be an object. Um, so wrap my head, head around that and have that um, define the way I'm going to, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, derive the definition of the function from that. And that I noticed uh, made my code so much more cleaner so much more easier to test um and that was that was purely because i did some haskell on the side i'm sorry uh, that was purely because i did some haskell on the side i like that you actually articulated what you think you learned out of learning haskell because the the phrase it helped me to think differently generally bothers me a lot when people talk about haskell because it's actually one of the reasons why i didn't learn haskell for a while okay. because i think at least to me, it sounded like like I've barely got a handle on most of this programming stuff. And then, like, you're telling, like, you know, people are telling me that learning this Haskell thing is going to just ruin me and I won't be able to do anything. Like, kind of <laughs> like when I switched to Vim and, like, or when I had to, when I had to start learning to mouse with my other hand. Um, <laughs> like, the, the loss in productivity is just something I didn't want to eat. <laughs> So, mm -hmm. that's that. I, I the weird thing was I did not notice that with uh, um, Haskell because I wasn't doing my day job in Haskell, right? 
Um, so uh, the off hours when I did get to work on it, um, it just like over time, my code was suddenly better. And I was like, I, I don't really know what's happening. I don't know why it's better. But uh, when I, I took like a, I took like a day off, uh, I think it was a Monday. Uh, I took the day off and I just went and I was like, why is it suddenly easier for me? And why am I able to think better and like process things better and like define things better and it all came down to me just understanding a bit of Haskell not even a lot of it just just a bit of it just um just getting the types right that's pretty much it I mean that actually bumped up my code quality uh, quite a lot and I think uh, you should probably give that a shot yeah I know it's kind of intimidating the way Haskell is portrayed um oh I mean I learned I learned some Haskell now because I went to recurse center and (laughs) so like yeah so you don't get out of there without learning some um (laughs) everybody that is obsessed with Haskell for some reason yeah Haskell and react Yes. <laughs> yes, so true. <laughs> but uh but yeah, what did you think about working on your code with other people though, once you started adding those things or were you working kind of independently? Um most of the projects that I used this on were my own projects, so I didn't really um get any kind of feedback uh, or like any kind of friction because usually it was just me working on it. Um but um what I've noticed is the trend right now in JavaScript is to move to using things like flow to do your type checking, right? And um, I think uh, in that sense, if uh, any of my, if somebody wanted to contribute to any of my projects, they would actually feel comfortable uh, knowing that there are type signatures there and that they can modify that to just into a format that flow understands. I think the friction would be lesser now, but I can't be so sure because I haven't, you know, I haven't really had that experience till now. Have you tried uh, PureScript? Uh, no, I've been meaning to, I was supposed to try PureScript at Recurse Center with Aditya Mukherjee. You had him on one of your episodes earlier. Um, and no, we didn't, we never got, we never got any time. And then his batch left and then I was sad. I spent like uh, a few hours with it and I, I found it really enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's like Haskell, but it's, uh, slightly less pure, which could be a, a, a good thing if you're, um, frustrated by Haskell's IO system sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the JavaScript it produced seemed really, um, I don't know if I call it clean. It was definitely understandable to see what it was doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in the way that Haskell, if you, if you have a function Haskell that takes, uh, two, two arguments, the, it's actually a function that takes one argument and returns a new function that takes a second argument. And then that actually returns the result. The yeah. JavaScript functions it produced were exactly that. They oh, were a bunch cool. of like nested curried functions. Yeah. Kind of neat. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the thing was, so the whole currying thing that you bought up, um, it's by far one of the coolest things that I've seen in Haskell. Um, like we define it, like you said, right? We define a function that adds two numbers, add XY. We write it as add XY equals X plus Y, but internally the compiler desugars it to returning a lambda, which in turn returns another lambda, which then adds the number for you. Right. Um, and like in the functional world, that is, pretty much godsend because um, you can take a function, partially apply a few parameters to it, and then you suddenly have this reusable function. Um, and this is something that um, I've been I've been using a lot in my code recently. Uh, one of my uh, projects out there, which is called like subsequent search, uh, that is completely based on, uh, I mean, everything that it returns, every interface that it returns is fully curryable and it internally uses a lot of currying. And it's suddenly like 10 lines of code shrunk down to like one. And I was like, 
wow, okay, there's a reason why people do functional programming. What was the library in JavaScript that Lynn mentioned like three months ago? Cool story, Justin. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Remember, remember <laughs> it, it did like the uh, the partial application in JavaScript? I don't know. I'll, like I'll, so many. I'll yeah. find it. <laughs> They like so many. If you don't find if you don't find one, I have one written also. You can find it. <laughs> Self plug time. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you use? <clears throat> what resources did you learn, use to learn Haskell? Uh it's a good question. Um, so I started off with uh, Learn You a Haskell, the book that everybody starts off from because it has pictures. <laughs> and uh, from there, uh, I never really finished the book. I got I reached like applicative functors and things just got a little hairy. Um, and uh, after that, um, I think the other resource was, um, what is that? The 99 problems, um, the list problems, but in Haskell. Um, and um, that coupled with a few blogs, um, that's pretty much what I use. I found the name of that library. It was called Ramda. Yeah, Ramda. Uh, oh, it's uh, it, the author is pretty sweet. I forgot his name. Um, I've spoken to him on Twitter a few times, and he's 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 a pretty chilled out guy. Though he has something for underscore, I think I don't know. It's like some kind of drama happening there. <laughs> yeah. And how much time did you spend on it? Are you are you still learning it, or do, have you stopped? Uh, so initially, like uh, the three months break that I'd taken before RC, um, I pretty much did Haskell every day for the first two months. Um, I made it like a rule, you know, wake up, have some breakfast and do Haskell. Uh, that was pretty much my life for two months. Um, and since then, um, the amount of Haskell that I have been doing has decreased quite a lot because I've been trying to learn languages um, that I can use at actual jobs because Haskell jobs in my country are pretty much zero, right? Um, so I've been trying to teach myself uh, Python and um, uh, Ruby. Um, so that's been taking up a lot of my time and I haven't got enough time for Haskell suddenly, which is quite, which is quite painful. But yeah, I haven't been given, uh, haven't been giving it a lot of time as of now. It's kind of trailed off. What are your thoughts on Ruby? <sighs> I love the syntax. That language is beautiful to write in. Uh, but uh, it's, it, the whole the whole nil situation and the null pointer situation, I mean, the whole null and nil situation is just weird. The number of times you need to test for that thing, it's crazy. <laughs> Plus the fact that it has no uh, static checking, uh, it just overall becomes painful like any other um, dynamic language, uh, that a dynamic interpreted language, you know? Half the time you end up with something saying that nil doesn't have that function that you're, def that you're trying to call on it, and you're like, wait, I forgot to put another nil check. It's like, shit. Yeah, but it has like one of the best syntax. I mean, I, I really love uh, it's. I really it, it's really nice to coordinate. Um, I hope the uh, the runtime can catch up though. There's a library called Contracts for Ruby, which um, adds type signature similar to, I guess, kind of similar to Haskell's. Um, but they're they're runtime type checking. They're not static. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're kind of like guards. Uh, but I I found it pretty pretty interesting. I haven't used it on a production app, but I've played around with it before and it seemed to add a lot of benefits. And I, I would say like, uh, you can't always avoid this in, uh, other people's libraries and code, but, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm sure you've already kind of come to that realization of if, if you return nil 
less often in in lower level functions. You have to worry about it less higher up. So I try yeah, to make true. it a point like to avoid returning nil ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually good advice. Um, I I was on to something like that, but I didn't have I didn't have it pinned down. Uh, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I think that can actually help me clean up a lot of my Ruby code. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, thanks for that. I, I didn't really think of it that way. Yeah, contracts is cool. Yeah, um, so the whole contracts thing. Um, um, I, I've been wanting to get into it. I don't really know a lot about it. I mean, I just know at a higher level what they're supposed to be. And the way that I um, look at it is it's just uh, a bunch of interfaces that two classes uh, agree to implement. Uh, do I have it right? I don't know. I might be off here. I, I think that um, the term contracts might like have that connotation in a lot of languages. Or, or I know in Elixir they call it protocols, mm -hmm. maybe like an interface. But Ruby doesn't have anything specifically. The contracts library I'm mentioning is just for adding like uh, type signatures that basically just wrap the next defined function in a guard. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't guarantee that any other classes also implement that. It's just like for that for that method only. That's interesting. I might I might have to have a look at it. Uh, yeah, probably probably tonight. It's funny because I realize when you're saying tonight, you mean like in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like shortly, <laughs> not like yeah. oh after a full day. It's already after yeah. your full day. <laughs> I mean, my full day was at home anyway. I took like a work from home today because I to like um, get a few questions done for a company that I'm trying to get into. So I was like, never mind, I'm just going to sit at home. And then uh, while I was answering through that thing, you know, the reminder pops up and I was like, oh, damn, I have like a call to get on. Yeah, I started panicking. Gonzalo knows about it. Uh, but yeah. So what did you work on at the Recurse Center? Ah, man, Recurse Center. So many things. That place is awesome, by the way. Anybody who wants to become a better engineer or a better person altogether, just go to the Recur Center. It has like, oh my God, that place is awesome. But yeah, uh, what I worked on there, um, well, I started off initially by pairing because I'd never paired before. So I paired with a ton of people during my first week. Oh, cool. uh, worked on a bunch. Yeah, I'd never paired before. I was like, I don't, even, I don't really know what's the awesome thing about it. And then I did it for a week, I think almost two weeks, and I was like, okay, now I get it. Um, and uh, during those two weeks, I worked on a lot of React projects uh, with people um, uh, because, like Pam mentioned earlier, React and Haskell are, are like the big things at the Recur Center right now. Um, and after that, um, I built like a naive version control tool, a link shortener, a bunch of projects on the side. And my main project was uh, a programming language that I was building. Uh, uh, called Mox, which basically was like a playground for me to um, learn how certain features and languages work. So, uh, for example, when we take functions, we take them for granted, right? We can write a function, it's going to execute, things are going to happen and stuff. How do we actually execute this whole concept of a, I mean, how do we implement this whole um, concept of a function or modules? Again, something that we take for granted. You can require something or import something. How do they actually work? How does the scoping work? What are the kind of uh, problems that you encounter when you're trying to implement modules? Um, so um, I spent uh, pretty much like, um, I, I think almost a month 
and a half or a month on uh, writing this programming language. And um, the remaining time, the time that I had left over um, was actually, a, I mean, the things that I ended up doing was like an effect of working on this language. Uh, um, I conducted a workshop on writing our own, uh, on building your own language, uh, where we built our own language in like about an hour or hour and a half. Um, and um, yeah, and I had, I mean, the last week there, um, I again got back to pairing with people. And um, that involved pairing on Python, Zulipbots, JavaScript, a bit of Haskell, you know. Yeah, and that was pretty much my time at RC. What did you learn about pairing that you thought um, that made you really like it? Or what about pairing did you really like? Um, well, the way we paired at RC was somehow kind of strict as in, we made sure that there was just one person who was at the computer and the other one was um, pretty much on the side just pointing out things. And um, what I really liked was the amount of, I mean, the increase in productivity. I, I, the number of times that I've gotten stuck at a problem and wasted like 20 minutes on it or 30 minutes on it and only then, you know, decided to go uh, rubber duck, uh, go use somebody else as a rubber duck. Um, that 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 whole 20 minutes or 30 minutes that I saved usually every time I pair programmed because somebody would be right there and that another uh, the other set of eyes on the code and another brain right next to you that is really really helpful and the jump in productivity that it gave um, that that was by far the coolest thing about uh, pairing and that's what I liked the most plus there's a whole social aspect which is pretty cool I guess so I'm looking at you have this jQuery plugin that seems to be kind of popular. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience with people using that and that kind of thing? Um, my experience has been really, really good with that project. That project pretty much, pretty, uh, sorry, uh, pretty much taught me about um, the open source world and how uh, development in the open source community works. Uh, that was my first project that um, picked up some kind of velocity, and uh, the result how do was. You how do you think yeah. people found it? Uh, so I did you did it. you go on did you do an SEO campaign? No, I didn't do anything. That's the surprising <laughs> thing. You know, I, I did not do anything. I just put it up on on um, uh, GitHub and uh, it was on uh, plugins.jquery.com, the old website. And a month later, it it appeared across a ton of blogs and people were downloading it all over the place. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. So I guess it it. It basically filled, or uh, it solved some problem that people really needed a solution for at that moment. And I guess the timing was I mean, right. Yeah, yeah it has a great name. Website. It's very Googleable. The is in yeah. viewport. <laughs> it's very, yeah. it's very linkable on Stack Overflow, probably. Yeah. I want to know that's... if something's in the viewport. Well, have you tried? <laughs> is in viewport. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. That might be it. But um, I guess it was it was a lot to do with just timing. It, it's just one of those random things that suddenly picks up, you know. Um, there was no real effort that at least I put behind it. But what I did notice was a ton of people put in an effort to write blog posts explaining how to use it and like a bunch of other things, which is pretty cool, I guess. Uh, but um, as an open source project, the really cool thing that it taught me was... Um, 
when people open issues and how to interact with people when they do that and when people are basically opening up issues that have that's basically just nonsense right how to deal with that in in a in a in a politically correct manner and um reviewing uh, pull requests and the whole the whole open source workflow right the whole github and git workflow um that that was something that i learned from that and that is invaluable because i use that on a daily basis right now yeah i've definitely had friends have experience with people just my favorite one is when someone opened an issue on on her project and just asked her to like do work for them. Like they were like they were just like, "Well, you obviously know what you're talking about." And I have this like they basically used her issues tab as Stack Overflow and just asked her random questions. <laughs> and she was just like, "Yeah, no." <laughs> no. <laughs> that is weird. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it was interesting. I don't know. Yeah. As somebody that doesn't do a lot of front-end development, when would I use this in viewport thing? Um, does it does it any, is it like when you're scrolling, yeah, like you want to know if something's on the screen or not? Yeah, in the I mean, viewport. At least that's what I would understand it to be. Like if you want to do lazy loading, uh, kind of thing. Yeah. right? Is that is that a common use case? Yeah, yeah, that that is a common use case. Um, the the advantage is is in viewport again is uh, pretty much a pure function. It does not bind itself to any kind of uh, events or anything. So you can go ahead and bind it to your scroll event or whatever. And um, basically, all it does is it takes a bunch of elements and it tells you if it's within the viewport and it lets you uh, configure something called a tolerance, uh, which is basically expanding the viewport or decreasing it. And um, when something is viewport, it returns the element so you can chain on it. Oh, so, okay. um, yeah, that that's pretty much all it does. Cool. Oh, Moody, can I ask you <laughs> one of my questions? I wrote a blog post about this a while back. I don't know if you read it or commented on it already, but it was the it was what jQuery can teach you about monads or whether jQuery is monadic because, or monadic? Anyway, um, because <laughs> it, it, because it, it, because it allows chaining. And mm-hmm. the, I think, I mean, I don't know, I kind of want to know your thoughts before I tell you what we, I think the answer is <laughs> in the, the <laughs> end. Think, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I think jQuery is quite monadic because, as I understand monads and, you know, this is the thing is course of monads is kicking in right now. So it's like really hard to go into a talk. I mean, to talk about monads, uh, the but, curse of monads. Yeah. So once, that once anybody, you start talking about monads, like nothing will make sense. No, the curse is more like if when you do not know anything about monads, you're fine. But once you learn and you figure out and it clicks in your head, you are unable to talk about it or explain it to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh i'm going to try but uh in my opinion um jquery is quite monadic because um it lets you do the bind operation that you have in monad which is basically chaining and it also keeps a ton of internal state to um figure out a bunch of things and just do a lot of these things internally um and and still give you a nice clean interface to chain things on so yeah i, I think it's quite monadic but i don't really know if uh, the the uh, the actual rules of monads you have like a bunch of rules right um, I don't really remember what they are but they're like mathematical rules I don't know if uh, if it fulfills them but in the way 
in the kind of API that it has and the kind of experience that you have with it, it is quite monadic in in my opinion. So yeah, was I right? Uh, <laughs> sounds right. From what from what I remember uh, from Haskell, so I, I I learned Haskell too, and I kind of got to a point where. I got to learning about monads and applicative and functors, and then I kind of stopped. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And from what I understand, a monad in Haskell implements three, uh, what are they called? Axioms, I guess? I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's like a keyword like implements or... Uh, anyway, so you can essentially like write an implementation for each type um, that is a like an applicative. An applicative, mm-hmm. if I understand correct, correctly, implements uh, fmap, which is basically just applying a function to something that is not the thing that you're usually applying the function to. So if you mm-hmm. take if you take a, a thing, like the maybe monad, right? So you have an integer, let's say. Let's say this is like maybe an integer, or it's mm-hmm. not. Um, fmap, if you had an integer in the box, or a fixed one, I guess, uh, or an int, uh, it would apply it to that to that int. And then return a new box that has the the new int in it. But if you mm-hmm. did, uh, and that that would be like some int. And then if you happen to fmap when it was none, you would just get none back. And then that's like a almost like a nil guard. Like you're just chaining that. And that seems like exactly how jQuery works. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know the other two, uh, I guess, implementations or laws like how they how they relate to that but i know i know uh pam's friend uh john moore did the math stuff for this and he seemed convinced it was a monad <laughs> r slash did the math ah, but yeah, yeah so the Sorry. the supposed or what people's responses were were exactly as justin said so john moore who i think is really smart was like mm-hmm. oh this is interesting and so i actually you know did the math <laughs> and said that said that it was uh um said it was monadic but then someone else responded and said it has certain features but it does it misses two of the rules so and then they linked to quora <laughs> so, um, but it behaves like a monad, but it doesn't follow all the rules, which is like it's basically what you all were saying. Is that that? And my favorite, uh, wh- like thing that lists all the rules is the Fantasyland repo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it actually shows like if this rule is followed, then it is a this, and then if it is a this that also has this, then it is a that. Um, so while I was Googling Monad nice in Haskell, chart. I found, uh, on Haskell.org, they have a Monad tutorials timeline, which is a comprehensive <laughs> collection of all Monad tor- tor- tutorials ordered by date. The oldest one <laughs> being in 1992. Which is probably the one you want to read. <laughs> <laughs> the first curse word was 1999. What the hell are Monads? <laughs> I think the the first thing would actually would be much older than that, right? Uh, Phil Wardler's paper on um, uh, what was it called? Uh, Free theorems for everyone. I think that was the paper. Okay. Um, which basically has him explain um, uh, monads, uh, free theorems. Phil Wardler. Um, yeah, theorems for free. Um, that and then there was another one. Uh, let me find this. I have this on my. 
computer somewhere. Uh, I've been meaning to read this. Uh, monads, monads. I think everybody has like a folder, like anybody who did any kind of Haskell or like functional programming, they pretty much all have a folder called monads on their computer somewhere, you know, and a ton of PDFs thrown in it. But yeah, I can't find the file, but there's another paper that um, Phil Wadler wrote uh, really long ago, um, which was basically about how um, you can use monads to express things like continuations and a bunch of other, other weird stuff that I didn't understand, but it was a pretty cool paper. Yeah. I think I said FMAP was from Applicative, but it's actually from... It's Functor. Functor, Functors. Yeah. 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 Applicative is nothing but um, an FMAP inside a box. That's all. So that means it's... Re no. Yeah. So it'll be like M of something. That something, you can basically FMAP over it. So that's why Applicative Functor, you know, it implements Functor and builds on top of it. Okay. So something Applicative is always a Functor. Uh, if yeah, usually because applicative the interface uh, has a constraint that um, whatever you pass to it needs to already be a functor. Oh, this is all really interesting. I don't have time to learn this right now. <laughs> right. It's like early morning Haskell. <laughs> I'm just in general, be... I'm, I'm usually like, oh, this is neat. Let me read about it for an entire week. But I have other things I should be learning and reading right now. True. I'm true. trying to learn Elixir before I give a talk on it. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Uh, Elixir is that uh, is um, built on top of Erlang, if I'm not wrong. Right? Yes, it's a implementation oh. of yeah the Erlang uh, VM, and it is it's sort of like Ruby. Um, it's compatible with all Erlang libraries, uh, but it adds a, a few things. Uh, the syntax is nicer. The tool chain is a lot nicer, uh, and you have uh, hygienic macros and. There's other neat things like list comprehensions and uh, what else? It's pretty. It's pretty good. <laughs> nice. I'm re I'm really enjoying it. Uh, there's a lot of people that are saying, uh, like you were saying earlier, like you hope Ruby the uh, the interpreter you know catches up to where computers are today. I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and Elixir seems like the answer to that problem, uh, whereas everything is uh, a function inside of a module. But then it also has mechanisms for objects communicating to each other, which they call actors. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, so you have you have this kind of you can write these uh, pure functions that just operate on data inside of a of a little you know uh, actor or process. And then uh, to communicate between them, you can use kind of more, I guess, familiar for me, object oriented things, but put it in a very safe way. We were just sending messages to other actors. The cool thing is, uh, I think at least, that Elixir is passed by value. I think it might, it might do some smart things underneath to, to optimize for either case. But if you send a message to an actor on your local machine or a machine or a uh, process running on another machine somewhere else, it's the same exact interface. Uh, nothing changes. So mm -hmm. it's very easy to distribute an application across multiple machines. And I'm exploring it in the sense of Microservices are very interesting to me, but they also have a lot of overhead, especially for like an individual developer just working on side projects. But I like the idea of keeping things kind of small and contained and, and deploying lots of little services. Uh, mm -hmm. And Elixir has kind of first-class support for writing a lot of apps that all run together. And you're not writing any serialization or communication things because it takes care of all that for you. Um, you're just writing these little independent components that can talk to each other. Uh, so it feels like I'm writing microservices, but it's... 
way, way easier than that. That's pretty cool. I mean, the thing with microservices is uh, it's like it's one of the big buzzwords right now. And people try to throw microservices at every problem and hope it sticks, which yeah. I think is kind which I think is kind of stupid. Right. Yeah, I think if you if. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I, I think it makes sense for a lot of people and a lot of teams that have, it's like, uh, what is it, Conway's Law, where people ship code that looks like their organizational structure. If you have, you know, I don't know, 50 developers, you can't have one monolithic application and expect people not to just butt heads constantly and, or, or expect them to know how everything works in the system. But if you can, if you can break your system up into these little, smaller pieces that people can understand by reading it for a few hours uh that seems much much easier to maintain for a large team obviously not everybody has that problem most people are just working on a team of you know two or three developers but my gripe is with companies that throw microservices at a problem um before even figuring out what their product should be like and (laughs) getting feedback from the people and like you know for a fact when you see a company like that you know that it's it's it was found by an engineer or a bunch of engineers and it's run by engineers because everybody's optimizing everything except for actually getting customers and optimizing for that and that that's my only that's the only issue that i have with the way microservices is used currently but yes it is it is it is a really cool thing and i think it's been around it, it got a fancy name now but it's been part of the unix philosophy for god knows how long right write small reusable interfaces and you take that onto the web and suddenly you have micro microservices right <laughs> um so it's 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 been a, it's been around for so long but all the recruiters and all have given it all these fancy terms and now it's been thrown at every problem and i'm like no don't think think stop and think a bit (laughs) so you said you you work somewhere or you're looking for work uh i work at uh orbits worldwide uh the travel uh and booking website oh cool yeah um so I, i work um as a senior software engineer in the bangalore offices and what that involves is basically working um, throughout the stack. Our stack is Java, a lot of Java. Uh, it's a nice, big, fluffy enterprise app. Um, so there's a lot of Java, a lot of JSP, a lot of. When Glass I think of a Java kind of enterprise app, fluffy is not the word I think of. <laughs> I didn't mean fluffy in the cute sense. I meant fluffy in the oh my god, don't sit on me. In like a mangy <laughs> dog, like that you like see like hobbling down the road, and you're like. I'm going to go to the other side of the street, like that kind. <laughs> Maybe. That sounds kind of painful. Ouch. That, that is an image I do not want at, at <laughs> six, 6 in the evening. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a big enterprise app. Uh, what's really cool about it is um, it's one of the few enterprise apps that I've seen that actually got the architecture right. Um, it, everything is a microservice. <laughs> Coming back to microservices, yeah, everything is a service, um, and pretty much uh, each team, uh, since everything is a service by itself, we all own our own services and just work on that, and that makes it really easy um, to bump up our um, uh, deploy. I mean, bump up our deploy frequency and a bunch of other things because we can optimize without having to depend on teams that are spread all across the world because Orbitz has offices everywhere, um, and. This is, it's one of the few companies where I've seen that they've got the architecture right uh, down pat. And uh, the, the really cool part is, and this is something that uh, Justin, you might find interesting, is uh, a bunch of our services are written in Erlang. Oh, and, cool. And uh, 
one of the guys who used to work at Orbitz, he was the author of Erlang in Action. Oh, wow. From, yeah, he was pretty cool. Yeah. Are those deployed as like independent apps or are they kind of connected together? Um, they're all deployed on different servers and everybody talks via um, whatever interfaces it exposes. So some have protocol buffers as interfaces, some has some have um, JSON stuff, some have really old school um, SOAP and XML stuff uh, because they've been around, I mean, the company's been around for like 11 or 15 years or okay. so. So, um, yeah, I mean, we have all kinds of interfaces, like a nice big supermarket of uh, interfaces. Uh, everything that you could possibly thought of is probably used somewhere. But um, the drive currently is to clean all of that stuff up and retire all of our older things and uh, bring up the interfaces to what's being used currently in the industry. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, that is something that even my team is looking at. So it's pretty cool. Is the what, what is the interface of choice now? Is it protocol buffers or something else? Oh yeah, most of the most of the um, uh, hosts or microservices that I've looked at, pretty much all of them talk proto buffers. And do you have like a repository of uh, I don't know what protocol buffers calls them schemas or structs that you share, or is every how, how does that work? Uh, every project has their own dot uh, proto files, which defines the schema. Okay. And um, and then if you want to talk to that service, you just need to implement those protocol buffers in your client. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, every every uh, um, repository um, it basically contains everything that that service will need. So um, it includes all the proto schema definitions. And when the communication starts off, there's kind of a handshake. Everybody figures out, okay, I need to talk to you in this particular format. And I guess like, I'm going to respond to you in this way. And it's like, okay, cool. Now we're fine. Now we can communicate. So everything is nice and decoupled and nobody has to worry about anything. The main reason being um, we wanted the teams, um, we needed to be able to bump up every team's velocity by decreasing the amount of dependency that they have on other teams. And um, I'm, I'm, it's pretty cool how much of that they have achieved. Nice. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we get to picks? Hmm. Um. You can, you can talk about music if you want. <laughs> I, I don't know anything <laughs> that, about it, but yeah, we well, Jervon, Jervon likes music. I like Jervon. I like often, listening music. Yeah, Jervon <laughs> often for context, Jervon generally has a a music pick of the week. I think every nice. Week. That is so cool. I'm I'm looking forward to whatever's going to be this week. Um, but to talk about music, um, it it's something that I think every programmer would be interested in it's it's probably something that people the thing is it's it's like it's like haskell you know there's like so much social stigma and like so much so many misconceptions that are spread around it that people don't approach it uh but i think music at least initially to get into it is quite simple and i think it 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 lends itself very well to somebody who's a programmer in the way that they think a programmer an engineer anything basically an engineer right um analytical thinking you can actually apply that to music because in music um you have structures so um uh you have chords which actually follow certain mathematical rules um and you have certain chord progressions which are well known because uh, a ton of songs use them and when you break them down again you're going to notice a bunch of patterns and the thing is the whole pattern recognition bit that is built into all programmers and all engineers that that really shines when you try to um, write your own music, especially digital music. Um, 
And uh, what I've noticed, and this is something, this is a small experiment that I conducted with a few friends of mine here where um, all of us are uh, computers, uh, we're all software engineers, and um, I gave all of them um, like a copy of a small tool, uh, like like they basically accessed my Ableton, uh, they all licensed it and used it, uh, which was probably, sorry Ableton, you know, <laughs> shit. <laughs> but yeah, they used it for a bit. And uh, what was really cool was none of them knew anything about music. But um, within the first week, everybody had written some kind of a song and it sounded pretty damn good. And none of them knew anything about it. Right. And um, what was really cool was, um, and this is what one of my friends told me, he was like, the way that I had to think about um, writing a song was pretty similar to the kind of approach that I take when I'm solving a problem. Right. I know where I need to get at. I know what my inputs are and I know how much of this domain I know. And combining all these three together, I get a software program or I get a piece of music. And I think that was a really cool uh, takeaway from that. And I think every, everybody should just give it a shot. It's really, really not that hard. You just load up a software and start pressing keys and suddenly you have a song. You won't even know it. So isn't, isn't Ableton pretty expensive? Yeah, Ableton's expensive, but there are like a ton of other free tools that let you do that. Um, um, plus there's the, the infamous FL studio that everybody starts off with, um, which is, uh, decently priced. And, uh, then there is, uh, I forget the name of the thing, but there's another one, which is free. Uh, I can't really remember the name right now. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the whole idea is any one of these things can do because you, you basically just need a software that lets you use something called VSTs, which are nothing but virtual instruments. Um, so anything that can run a VST for you is good enough. You don't even need Ableton or Fruity Loops or I don't even know, Bitwig or something. Yeah. Have you ever uh, done any music production with code? No, I haven't. But there was this talk recently. Um, I do not remember where or by who, but I retweeted it. And um, the the uh, the person who was giving the talk, um, he was programming music live in a custom written Lisp. He wrote a DSL, which generates chords and moves scales around and does a bunch of fancy stuff. And he can set up patterns in it and tempo and time signature. And he played like a whole um, piece out live just by coding live. Was you it know? Overtone? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. Uh, it was it closure? Uh, no, it, 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 uh, I'm not sure. I'm so, <laughs> yeah. It was like, I found that like so cool. And this was like at 5 a.m. in the morning. So I'm pretty sure I won't remember who or where or what. But all I remember, it was really, really cool. Uh, it's somewhere on my Twitter feed. I can find it, post this, and I can send the link to you guys. And you can have a look at it. So the name of the language that you wrote is... Mooks? Mooks, yeah, M-O-K-S. That's why you wrote uh, mooks.el? Yes. <laughs> so I'm an Emacs guy. Um, um, I do all my work in Emacs. And I I was too lazy to implement a REPL for Mooks because I, I just wanted a few features right here and there. Um, so I just went ahead and wrote a major board for Mooks and Emacs that you can use. And um, I, pretty, I used that even while presenting the language and surprisingly didn't break. So, yeah, it, that was a lot of fun. So you said you were too lazy to do a REPL. What did Emacs give you? Like you could send code to... Emacs gave me eShell and Control XB. Okay. <laughs> so I just write something and Control XB into my send eShell thing. Eshell. And okay. Yeah, just run it. <laughs> I just run it in there. Because REPL and everything was overkill initially when 
the whole point for me was to understand how features work, not about how to build a REPL, which I have done before, and it's really not that hard, right? So I wanted to spend more time on implementing things like lambdas and higher order functions and stuff like that, as opposed to spending time mucking around with Ace Editor and Browserify and all that stuff and loading stuff into the browser and making a web page out of it, which is easy, which can be done trivially anytime. What are your thoughts on Asia and ANSI term? <sighs> I think I'm one of the few guys who actually likes Asia for what it is. Um, I've never usually ever faced any kinds of issues with Isha. Um, but then again, the only time that I spend, uh, the only uh, times that I spend a lot of time it, within Isha is when I'm using a language that doesn't have some kind of an Emacs integration, which is very, very, very rare to come across. Uh, so uh, when I'm working with Haskell, there's um, Haskell mode, which does everything for me. Haskell mode with uh, GHC mode. For JavaScript, there's turn.js, so I never have to ever hit... Um, eShell or anything again for any kind of intelligence but for whatever I have used eShell for it's never ever given me any issues and I quite like it I quite like it so eShell is uh, a shell that comes with Emacs written in Emacs Lisp for those of you um, mm-hmm. like a shell like bash or ZSH kind of thing yeah hmm. and I think w- yeah sorry go ahead that's one of the powers that they say that Emacs comes with is it comes with shells but when I first started using Emacs, I was like, this is terrible. And I always <laughs> jumped back to the shell. Um, but I also came to the realization, which you just mentioned, is most things come with some type of Emacs integration. And that allows you not to need like a specific shell. You just use that. Um, and I've heard if you use and view eShell for what it is, like a very simplified thing, it's very powerful. So that's the stage I'm at now with Emacs is use the integration of the language and then if it doesn't have one, use eShell. And just use eShell for like LSing and other simple things. I have no desire to learn Emacs. I'm quite happy with Vim. Uh, I'm comfortable in it. I, I'm, I think I'm getting kind of good at it. But there's a uh, a plugin for Emacs called Alchemist, which is a really, really, really good Elixir IDE. And I can't find anything uh, comparative in, to that in Vim, so I, f- I feel I feel left out. The grass is greener over there. Yeah, you should you should totally move to Emacs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, the, uh, isn't that like a thing? Uh, I think Space Max it's called that lets you combine mm-hmm. Vim and Emacs and everything else together. Well, it's yeah. just it's just evil mode in. I don't know what else Space Max does besides. Yeah, I have no idea. Default to evil I've, mode. So. It's based around evil mode. It gives you themes. It also gives you a bunch of modes um, that you can enable. So if you write Ruby, you can add Ruby to the manifest. Or but I mean, the, those are just other plugins that have existed that are just come bundled, right? Yeah, is but it, is it like the you, Janus of Vim, Vmax. Pretty much Janus of Vim based around evil mode. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I I was a Vim user. Uh, for almost two years. Um, and um, I saw Mary Rose Cook from RC live code a game in Emacs. And the speed at which she did it, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> right? And uh, that evening, I uninstalled every editor from my computer and I literally just left Emacs. So I got rid of everything that is built in 
and I did not have a choice but to use Emacs for everything. And what I realized was it was painful initially, but the payoffs now are huge. I mean, uh, on a daily basis, there are very few things that I ever leave Emacs for. And the main thing being using Chrome uh, or my browser, basically. But uh, my IRC happens from within Emacs. Uh, at times, I send mails from within Emacs. Um, all my coding happens there. Um, there. There was a time when I was when I actually tied up uh, my calendar within Emacs and like synced things together, which was ridiculous. But it got hairy quickly. Uh, and once you get used, it's like it's like the thing that every Emacs person says, right? Emacs. It, you probably don't need an OS if you have Emacs. You should just you should just have a mode called OS with an Emacs, which lets you do all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you should you should totally give and everybody who's listening to this give give Emacs a shot. <laughs> Evangelism. Yeah, yeah. Are we ready to picks? I think so. I'm just waking up though. Uh, so is that a no? That is a yes. You want to start? Sure. Um, so last week, uh, we were working on a project, uh, which is an API, and we wanted to document it um, before we were just doing it in the README. Um, and we found this tool called Swagger, swagger.io, and it gives you an editor. You can edit it in your own um, editor. It's just a YAML file or a JSON file. Um, and it you can also add documentation inline in your code. And it also gives you a UI. Um, and you can make API requests. And you can give it to your client or a person using your API. And they can test out your API. Uh, that's my programming pick. And then my music pick is uh, a soundtrack or a playlist. I don't think they have a soundtrack. I think it's a playlist to a documentary called um, Where the Trail Ends. Uh, so documentary about mountain biking it's really cool you should also watch that um but those are my picks pam um we haven't had a well i guess so the side effect of having a guest is also that we didn't do kind of our catch-up and so i'm my pick is going to be my shameless plug for I did a port of the Millennials to Snake People extension to Firefox. So this already exists. Like this is on Chrome and it is like it got a bunch of press and all that jazz. Um, and then so I found out about it because someone was talking about it on Facebook and they were sad that there wasn't a Firefox one. And so I ported it. And so my pick is generally Millennials to Snake People with a shill for the uh, Firefox extension. Um, my pick will be, there was a discussion on Reddit uh, CompSci where somebody was looking for computer science books uh, in audio format. Uh, and I've also looked for that before. Um, but some of the responses were about podcasts for computer science. And one of the responses was uh, a podcast called Talking Machines which I think is new this year, maybe. Uh, let me see. The first episode was... Yep, January 1st. Uh, I listened to the first episode, and it's really good. Uh, it's about AI and machine learning. So if you have any interest in even knowing what those are, 
because I that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, you should definitely give it a listen. Uh, the I think there was a host and an expert on the first uh, episode, and uh, it was just really interesting. I highly recommend it. Talking Machines on iTunes or on the internet. The site is very beautiful. It is. Very nice typography. Mood it? Yes. Um, I have to get it. Oh, shit. I didn't know that I'm supposed to pick something also. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, huh. Okay. So uh, my pick would be uh, uh, this article uh, that I read recently um, by Noel from Games from Within. Uh, I think it's on Lobsters uh, currently. Um, uh, it's called uh, What's Your Pain Threshold? And it basically uh, talks about how um, um, we as programmers um, have this concept of state of flow, right? Where we're in the flow, we're doing things real quickly and we're really productive. Uh, we optimize for a ton of things. We optimize a code, but we never really optimize um, uh, for a state of flow. Uh, for example, when you run a build uh, and the build takes... 10 seconds, your state of flow is disrupted in a way. We never really think about that consciously. And he talks about how that affected um, him and his colleague and how they solved that issue uh, and their cases with respect to um, their test suite that uh, was supposed to run, that used to run a sub uh, second. And then once it became really huge, uh, it started running more than that. So it took like two seconds. And two seconds actually disrupted disrupted his flow and how he fixed that. So it's a really cool article. Um, and um, that, and along with that, um, there's this, I um, can't quite remember. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so this project by Olivia from the Recurse Center called Selfie uh, selfie Apocalypse, if I'm not wrong. Uh, everybody should check that out. That's a really cool project where she's um, um, built shaders in web uh, using uh, in WebGL. And one of the shaders called the ASCII shader is really, really cool, which uh, ASCIIfies whatever the camera is looking at. Uh, and um, yeah, these are two things I think people should check out. Great. If you want to see more about this episode and listen to other episodes, you can go to turing.cool slash 57. Mudit, thanks so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having and, me. Oh, and if people want to hang out with you or follow you or give you money, how do they do that? Uh, so <laughs> give me money. That was fun. Okay. Uh, people can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm Twitter slash Mudit Ameta. That's M-U-D-I-T-A-M-E-T-A. Uh, or you can go to mudit.xyz. That's my website. Um, on GitHub, I am... Uh, get up slash Zeusdu, so that's Z-E-U-S-D-E-U-X. Uh, you can find me anywhere, but the easiest way to reach me would be Twitter. And um, if anyone out there has access to Zulip, you can always find me on Zulip. I'm always on Zulip. Great. Thanks so much. And if you're uh, listening to this, uh, send a tweet to Len at Ignu on Twitter, a uh, I G N U, and uh, tell him to wake up earlier when we record. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you. Bye. See you. Thank bye you for Bye bye. Bye. Oh, what is Zulip? It's the chat uh, system for Recurse Center. I think that's kind of uh, a shout out for Recurse people. Did he hang up? Oh, I guess. <laughs> is it uh, like something Recurse made or is it like. Uh, no, so it's. Well, so it was a it was a chat system like pre Slack, 
and then before they got like any traction um oh uh <laughs> i'm gonna add moody back it. he wants to come back <laughs> You can just join. Uh, you yeah, you click the join button. <laughs> um, oh, but so they got acquired by Dropbox before they got out of beta. Okay. So it totally could have been like a Slack killer. Yeah, or, I mean, or Slack. I mean, it's definitely not as good as Slack. <laughs> so do you know um, what Dropbox is does... doing with it? Do what? Yeah, I think they want to open. Do you know what Dropbox, Dropbox is doing with it? They're going to open source it. That's okay. not like on paper anywhere that I know of, but like that's the the rumors I heard. Um, and uh, but they, but yeah. So um, not the Jessica from Python, Jessica McKellar. Um, she was on Zulip. And now is like a director at Dropbox or something. Whoa. She's fancy. <laughs> I, I think Zulip would have never really killed Slack because it does, it, it's not really... Because it's I not mean, as good. <laughs> no, I mean, I prefer like, Zulip over Slack. I prefer Zulip over Slack any day. Really? Yeah. But, but I don't know. I feel like for the average audience, Slack is better. Yeah, exactly. No, that's true. That's true. But uh, Zulip, is, Zulip is like um, is like Git of communication for me because it's really easy to make streams and messages and all that stuff. Uh, it's like how easy it is to branch in Git, and um, you can just get done with something and then throw it away. Uh, you can't really do that that quickly in Slack. Slack is not really built to do that. Uh, but like you said, for pretty much the general public, Slack is pretty damn good. It's some of us who who have our heads on the wrong way that like Zulip. No, I'm kidding. I love Zulip. Zulip is awesome. <laughs> um, just yeah, go ahead. You were talking about um, Elixir and Erlang, and um, it passes things use uh, it passes things by value. Uh-huh. If I remember correctly. Uh, doesn't that add a lot of overhead? Because passing everything by value, that means it has to copy things over and to map things in here memory. and there. Yes, it is, it is slower True. than packets by reference and having direct access to the memory that has that value, uh, the mm-hmm. original value, but it's safer because you always get a copy of something. You never get the original, so you're never mutating any state. Yeah. So there, yeah. there's a trade-off there. Um, I think Elixir apps are still faster than something like Python or Ruby. Um, but they're not going to be as fast as something written in C or Go or something that is. Why do you think it, I mean, why do you think it's that way? Because even though it's doing all this ton of copying, why do you think it's faster than um, apps written in Python or Node or Ruby or something? Oh, hold on one second, sorry. Sure. <laughs> oh, Jervon? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm... I started doing Closure Brave and True. Oh, nice. Like, actually, w- with renewed actual effort. And I'm in the Emacs chapter, so I thought of yes. you and Moody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty sweet blog. Uh, pretty sweet online book slash blog slash... I don't know what it is anymore. Sorry. Yeah, like, it is turning into a book, but... They so, sell it as a book. I, yeah, oh. but the... um. 
one of the great things was how like I get to the part where it's like, yeah, now you've learned enough Emacs to be done with it. And it didn't tell you how to quit. <laughs> and like that's like the first thing I want to know in an editor is how to get out. So you don't quit Emacs. Then you know you don't. That's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> but Once like if I'm on, on a server... Because like... I, I was seeing some people on Twitter even recently, like some developers on my stream say like, oh, I'm afraid to learn Vim because I don't want to take the productivity hit, which like is kind of what I was saying earlier, I guess, about Haskell where like I, I don't like, like, like I, you know, I don't like taking the productivity hit for things, but, and I definitely thought that same thing about Vim and then I finally learned it. But, and then like, I think people oversell how hard things are. They aren't that hard. Um, That's true. That's like true. once you understand that Vim is a modal editor, it's pretty easy to learn. I don't really, I haven't really gotten the like these. I guess the secret of Emacs is that it's not an editor; it's like an operating system. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the Emacs secret. Yeah, that's that the big. It's Emacs all secret. it's all it's all key mappings to functions, and you can re like reassign those functions as you want because it's a Lisp. And if you've gotten that already, you're gonna love Emacs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, so. I'm just gonna. I'm like, it's like become my aim in life to talk people into switching to Emacs. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. It's like there's so many cool things you can. So you were talking about uh, the whole thing if you were running things on a server, right? Uh, yeah. If you're using Emacs, you don't even have to log into the box to work on files on a different box via terminal or anything. Or fire. You can you can fire up. Uh, there are two ways to do it. You can either use something called the tramp mode, which is built in, which lets you SSH into a box and then uh, it gives you, uh, it basically tunnels whatever you're doing in Emacs uh, and uh, uh, makes the changes on the remote box. Uh, so you could, you could SSH into a box, open uh, a directory, open a file, and it would load all your plugins locally, right? So there is no overhead of passing data across, I mean, on the wire. And you make changes, you check everything locally, and when you hit save, it saves it on the remote box, right? Uh, so that is one thing. Or you could run, so Emacs, it's an OS, right? So it has its own daemon. Uh, you can run that daemon on your any, any box anywhere, and you can just uh, connect to it. So I, I usually run a daemon on my home machine, and um, whenever I'm out traveling, I just SSH, uh, I just make my client on whatever computer I have with me then, just connect to this box and never install anything on that. Emacs, yeah. <laughs> do you use the GUI or do you use the terminal? Uh, I was on the terminal, but iTerm and the terminal in, the, the terminal in OSX is shit. Uh, you have to remap. You have to like reassign uh, um, the um, what are they called? The escape codes. Yeah, no, not just the meta keys. Like when you hit uh, meta D, uh, it actually inserts delta when it's supposed mm. to actually fire off a different, uh, I don't know what they're called, escape codes? I, I'm not really sure. But I actually did that on one of my boxes and I got lazy and I was like, screw it. And I moved to the GUI one because all the all the bindings work as they're supposed to. I don't have to go into something and set up new um, things. <laughs> wow, English. Yeah, it's hard. What are they called? What are they called? God damn it. Uh, they're called actions. You need to send hex codes, which is annoying. 
I'm here. Where did Justin go? I'm here. Oh. Yeah, um, so we were talking about that thing, right? So why do you think uh, it's Oh, the pass by value is faster. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's yeah. faster, but I think that maybe the Erlang VM is just faster in general. I think it's a simpler uh, language in Virtual Machine too. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but it seems like the, like, so you're, I guess uh, Erlang and Elixir are closer to, like, Java and the JVM than something like Ruby, where you're, you're doing this intermediate compile step to, like, a a bytecode that's Mm -hmm. portable. You're not actually producing a binary. You still need the the Erlang VM to run your, your beam code, but Mm -hmm. whereas Ruby, you need a full Ruby interpreter to run Ruby code. So I guess True. that part of it, it's like already uh, interpreted. However, uh, the loading of Ruby should only take a second. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it seems fast. I, I think I think that maybe maybe because you're passing by value. Well, I, I know one thing from MRI Ruby, which is the the Mats Ruby interpreter, the 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 C Ruby, which is the de facto Ruby that you use instead of like J Ruby or or Rubinius. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That has a global interpreter lock because yeah. every time you operate on data, you need to make sure nothing else is operating on that data. But mm-hmm. in uh, in Erlang and Elixir, there's never any fear of that, so it can use all the cores in your machine with no no issues. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So that means um, in in the beam code that it generates. Um, it doesn't have to maintain another symbol table along with that for values. It can just literally plug in the values in the uh, in the. I'm guessing it's an SSA kind of uh, uh, intermediate language, a single static assignment, um, where I guess it just sticks in the values. Then, right? It wouldn't really have to maintain another symbol table which maps from uh, variable names or names to values. I don't know. It, do you think that's that's how it works? Maybe I don't know enough about. Um... The like how to write a, a programming language and interpret it to to know that. <laughs> no, my, uh, above my head. Again, you know, it's one of those things that pe- there's like it's it's really not that hard. It's just people make it seem. I mean, people portray it as something hard so that they can feel better about themselves, which is so stupid, right? <laughs> it is really not that hard. I mean, you can initially start off by say using. Uh, Something like Flex or Bison if you're a C person or like any, uh, if you're in Python, there's like a bunch of libraries. Haskell has Happy, which takes in a grammar, generates a parser for you. You can use the parser. Cool. Um, And then all you do is write an interpreter, which is nothing but uh, a function that is going to walk a tree in uh, in pre-order and execute stuff. And people make it seem, people make it out to be something so grand and majestic and hard. It's not, it's not at all. And um, when it comes to uh, like the the VM for Erlang, um, it is if I'm not wrong, I don't know about Erlang, but the way you describe it, it seems like it's a stack-based virtual machine, which is which is like if you wrote a program to um, uh, solve a, a, an expression that was in Polish notation, um, that is basically a stack-based VM that you've just written. Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So if if you take that. And you replace the Polish notation with this bytecode, and the bytecode is exactly as that. It tells, it pushes stuff on the stack, and then when it gets an instruction, it pops from the stack, executes the instruction, pushes the result back onto the stack, and it goes on till it finishes the whole uh, thing. And people make it seem, make it out to be like 
oh my god it's so hard it's just technology <sighs> people's egos and technology <laughs> not the best of mixes that's really cool though. i'm going to end up reading up uh, on beam and uh shit that was my evening <laughs> elixir seems like a, a really cool language that's getting a lot of traction and i don't know if i mentioned this during the Oh, I, I was saying that, um, yeah, it, it solves all the problems that Ruby has and has a very Ruby-like syntax. Um, but the other thing I did, I forgot to mention, which I think I mentioned last week on the podcast, was uh, it seems like many consultancies that do Ruby and Rails consulting are instead now doing Elixir and Ember consulting as their their offering. And like, I, I could definitely see a future in a few years where every time somebody starts a new like startup project, it's probably written in Elixir instead of Ruby. Um, so it seems like a, a great language to learn for your career. Not you specifically, but just in general, anybody. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to learn it to, to protect my own career. <laughs> <laughs> What's the ramp-up time like? Uh, it's it's a very simple language, and the tooling is very, very friendly. So I feel like, uh, especially if you already played with... Uh, I mean, you seem like you already know a couple languages. and Especially if you've written Haskell, you've dealt with Haskell's really shitty tool chain. Uh, mm -hmm. So you probably have no problem <laughs> getting up and running in like a, a very short time. Yeah, I think um, I might give it a shot. Yeah, there's there's a there's a tool called Mix, which is uh like in Ruby Rake, um mm -hmm. or in Haskell Cabal, which does mm -hmm. uh compilation and uh tasks like like test running and other things. Uh, there's this package manager called Hex, which which when you install Elixir uh in and you install like a mix project, it will install for you. Um mm -hmm. that's a package manager for any Erlang package, including Elixir. Um, but it seems like that kind of came out of the Elixir community. Is kind of dragging the Erlang community into modern tooling with that. Um, the the test framework that comes with it is very nice. Uh, it it supports like uh, concurrent or I guess parallel testing by default. Nice. Uh, you, and you you can essentially say like async false if if your if your functions don't don't support parallelism. Um, and I like the syntax. Like, if you look at like. Uh, like Python has a very simple syntax with the white space indentation, but Ruby syntax is actually very complicated for, uh, especially for a machine to to reason about. But mm -hmm. I guess by uh, if if it's complicated for a machine to reason about, it must be complicated for a human also. Uh, no, I, like like when I, you I, when you put like yeah. a, a do and an end, like they kind of in Elixir that's very explicit. Like everything has like when you define a module, when you define a function, they they always have do on the end. Mm-hmm. And do is actually a argument in a way where instead of writing like a block with do and then end at the end, you can actually just write do colon at the end of the function and put your entire function body to the right of it, and it will just kind of neat. That's um, but cool. a lot of these are just examples. You, like in the first few tutorials you read, you'll just run into right away. So it's pretty, pretty. I've, I've been enjoying learning it. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the, I remember. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> There was this uh, uh, this website that uh, was on your uh, was on uh, Turing and Complete a while ago. Um, I don't really remember the name, but it basically uh, uh, has like um, uh, ex not exercises like projects in like a bunch of languages uh, that you build from scratch. Uh, and the latest one on that was in Closure. I cannot remember the name of the website, but I got it off um, this podcast uh, off your podcast. Which was oh, really I remember cool. that uh, the way how I start. How I start? Yes, that's the one. That's the one. I think it has a thing for Elixir also that 
the uh, maker of Elixir wrote. Yeah, yeah. there's there's one. Yeah. I think I might. Have you given that a shot? You think I should give that a shot? I mean, would you? If, uh, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, it seems seems cool. I think it was written by Jose Valim, which is the creator of Elixir, and he seems mm-hmm. to be really good at communicating uh, ideas. Um, I also like. I read the book uh, "Programming Elixir" by Dave Thomas, and mm-hmm. that's really well written um, in in terms of the writing, and also in terms of like what he chooses to go in depth in and what he chooses to skip over. Like he says kind of blatantly sometimes, like or bluntly, that like you don't need this specific part to learn Elixir, so don't worry about it. Like if you want to learn more about that, you can Google it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's a really good book. I really enjoyed it. That's pretty cool. I might, I might actually. This is, oh my god, I'm gonna like end up doing all this thing tonight and not get any work done. Here's an example of how simple Elixir is. Um, uh-huh. Everything except for the very very core of the language is written in Elixir itself. So something like an if statement, not that you use a lot of if statements in Elixir, but an if statement is a, is a macro. So mm-hmm. essentially you write uh, if, if, uh, if, if foo uh, do true, you know, else false. That's a terrible example. But uh, essentially you're calling a macro with three quoted forms. Are you familiar with like quoting in a, in like a language like closure or other languages it's essentially yes, like okay cool. yes, uh so you're, mm-hmm. you're, it's receiving three quoted forms and mm-hmm. then what it does is it unquotes the first form which is the uh the foo like the, the test case it unquotes that and then it has pattern matching so it says if that unquoted to uh false or nil run the second then unquote the second form and return that. otherwise false, yeah and then and then otherwise anything else just unquote the first form and return that so it's just crazy, like something like an if statement, like 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 uh, the logic of the language, or I guess one one way to do logic in the language uh, is just like this very simple, like it's like a five line definition. Uh, it seemed pretty cool. They made it a little more complicated because they did something they called normalizing uh, def macro. Let me try to find this. <laughs> uh, they they made it a little more complicated by adding some boolean stuff, uh, but. Okay. See, Elixir, Def Macro. Where's the oh, code? I can't find the article. There we go. There it is. Yeah, that's. I mean, this is this is very reminiscent of um, um, dealing with macros in like closure, mm-hmm. where um, so uh, Afer has like a bunch of blog posts where, <clears throat> which he calls closure from the ground up series, okay. and. Uh, one of the um, chapters, and that is on macros, where you write your own if macro, which is ridiculously simple, and it's exactly how you define it. It's just a bit of pattern matching. It's not even pattern matching in this case. You just check if the predicate is truthy. If it's truthy, run the second branch, or I mean, if it's truthy, run the main branch. Otherwise, run the second branch. That's all. And in that three lines, you have you have suddenly built in a feature into the language that you might need at some other point. So cool. Macros are awesome. Macros are awesome. <laughs> I think JavaScript is getting them in ES, whatever it's called now, ES Next Seven. Oh, is it? Yeah, cool. there's there's been talk. There's been talk because ES there's this thing called this year's and ES twenty sixteen is next year's. It's by years now. Oh, it's by years now. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, I, there's that library that Mozilla wrote. Uh, Mozilla wrote, right? Um, I think it's called Sweet or Sugar or something. Sugar, sweet. It's a macro system that they built that lets you define macros uh, in JavaScript. Okay. So um, 
that suddenly like i think that impressed a lot of people who are part of the uh, uh <clears throat> ecmascript committee and the guys who are uh, the tc39 working group and everybody's pushing for that now it's pretty cool if we get macros it's going to be javascript is not a language that's like designed for macros so it's going to be it's going to be dirty and weird but i don't know people can do some really cool things with things that are weird and suddenly make it clean i'm just going to use what those people write quite a manner in the work i mean i completely forgot about the time difference yes 9:30 Oh shit it's like 7 p.m. I want to go make myself some dinner. <laughs> thanks. Well, it was uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. Thank thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah. And this finally happened, Pam. Pam. Yeah. <laughs> We've been trying to make this happen since I think June 1st. Yeah. Cool. Shit. That's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Right. Well, thank you for having me, right? Uh we should probably catch up soon about something else or keep me posted if anything new comes up cool i follow all of you all on twitter anyway so yeah <laughs> that's that right, right. right see ya see ya have a good night y'all have a nice day bye bye